let me start by just introing why I'm uh, preaching today from this passage in particular, how this story went. Uh, this summer, maybe two weeks before uh, the school year started, I stopped by the office to say hello to a few people and try to get my hands on some of the syllabi a little early so I could uh, get ahead on reading and whatnot and, and see what was um, what the semester would hold. And I stopped by Danny's office, which he selfishly took from all of us, uh, our old study slash break room. Anyway, uh, so I stopped by and Danny said, hey, this summer or this semester over chapel, we're going to be speaking about spiritual disciplines. We're going to have people come in and talk about spiritual disciplines in their lives, what they practice, passages in scripture uh, that address this topic. Would you be interested in speaking on, uh, during a chapel service on one of these topics? And I said, well, what's the passage? He said, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And I thought, no way. Nope. There's no way I'm going to do that. I almost immediately said no to him out loud for two reasons. Not because I don't love this passage, because I do. This is one of the first passages a lot of people learn in youth group and so on. But the reason that I said I was going to say no is because it is so familiar to everyone. And sometimes that's really difficult to talk about a passage of Scripture that everybody that you're talking to comes in expecting to know already what you're going to say. And so I thought, everybody knows this passage. I get why you would choose this one. I don't know. Plus, I'm really busy. I'm preaching this Sunday at church, so that's two sermons to prepare this week, plus schoolwork and little kids and stuff like that. And so I almost said no. But Danny said, because we're focusing on spiritual disciplines and because of your military background, I thought this would be perfect because the armor of God is very military-oriented, and you could talk about how Montana Bible College is kind of like boot camp, and then afterwards you go out into the real world, world and you're equipped with the armor of God, and it's all about discipline, and plus, what's more disciplined than a good soldier? You were a soldier, right? And then I thought, now I'm going to have to find out where to hide Danny's body for calling me a soldier. <laughs> so to, to answer Danny's question, what's more disciplined than a soldier... I feel like I should ask either Rick or Tony what's more disciplined than a soldier. A Marine, of course. And as a former Marine, I thought, well, now you've got my attention. I could possibly talk about this topic. I said, well, what day do you want to do that? Do you want me to preach on? He said, November 10th. And I said, really? Not only is tomorrow Veterans Day, but today is the 241st birthday of the Marine Corps. I thought this is the most sovereignly ordained series of events, both the date and the text, and so I am really, in fact, excited to be here to preach from God's Word. I love standing in front of this group of people in particular. I've gotten to do it a couple times since I've been a student here at the Bible College. Uh, and so I want to share with you what the Lord has placed on my heart regarding this passage, these 11 verses in Ephesians 6. So if you have not done so already, please turn to Ephesians 6, verse 10 um, in your Bible, or if you have a, another device that you use, and I'm going to read them. And once I'm done, we'll get into uh, the points that I want to make today. Ephesians 6.10, I'm, I'm reading from ESV. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, 
Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that, my, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So these words from Paul... Uh, if you recall from Tuesday, Jim Kena, who preached here at Tap on Tuesday, really set this up very well. He explained the, uh, how Ephesians is broken into two parts. You have the first three chapters, which share with us and explain to us who we are in Christ. We learn about all the blessings that we share and our p- position in Him and who He was for us and who we are now as children of God. And in the last three chapters of the book, we learn then how we ought to live in accordance with what we just read in the first three chapters. The second half of the book serves as a sort of manual for Christian living based on the truths that you learn in the first three chapters. Paul breaks these uh, three chapters down into different categories, which I'll talk about very briefly as a matter of background. But they all fall underneath one major heading, And that's the introduction to this section of the book. I'll just read um, from chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, this is his transition into telling them what to do, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so that's what the last half of this book does for us. It explains, Paul says, live like a Christian. He says, live as you ought to based on the calling you've received in Jesus Christ. This is what that looks like. These three categories deal with interpersonal relationships primarily. He says in chapter 4, 1 through 16, this is how you relate within the church. This is a new entity for, for people that are taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're now part of God's covenant people. We're part of the church. And so how do you exist as a believer in church? From 4.17 through 5.14, he says, how do you live in the world? You used to be from the world. There ought to be something different about you now that you are in Christ. This is what that looks like. Do these things in society, among other people. And then in chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6.9, he talks about how we are to live within our households. Husbands and wives, fathers and children... This is how we ought to live within our homes, because now the institutions of marriage and of parenting and the parent-child relationship take on a new dynamic. They're now viewed through the lens of what Christ's love for the church was, for what, through the lens of what God's love for his children is. And so how do we exist as Christians? How do we live a life worthy of our calling in our homes? And Paul explains all that, and obviously we don't have time to talk about these. 
Now, however, in chapter 6, verse 10, it starts with the word finally. Paul is bringing to conclusion this letter, and he says, okay, I have one more area in which you as believers need to learn how to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And it's no longer interpersonal. It's no longer within the church, within society, within my home. Now it is on a spiritual, cosmic sense. So Christ is in me. I am in him. I'm part of God's, I've been adopted into God's family. On the big picture, cosmically, spiritually, the stuff that we don't necessarily see and feel and touch every day, how do I live a life worthy of my calling in that area of life? He moves beyond the realm of physical relationships and says there is real, present spiritual warfare that you as Christians, that you as Christians are going to deal with in your lives. And how do you do that? Paul will go on in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, to break this down into three uh, sections that help us understand. And I'm not going to go through each of these, and I'll explain in a minute why. But in verses 10 through 13, he says, put on the armor of God in order to be strong. I'm sure you caught the word stand in there several times. Standing firm, having done all to stand, in the power of his might, be strong. And he says the, power, the armor of God is given to us for this purpose. In verses 14 through 17, he explains what each of the pieces of armor is and what their function is. And then he closes in verses 18 through 20, right before his benediction, by saying, and pray. Pray for me, too, because I need to proclaim the word boldly. He's in prison, an ambassador for Christ in chains. I would love to take the next several chapel services to walk through all of this information with you. I would encourage you to study it on your own and see how it applies to your life, but we just don't have time for that. Besides, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the different pieces of armor and what their, their corresponding spiritual gift or truth is. If I were to survey this group, most of you would probably be able to rattle off what all the pieces of armor is, and that's great. You should know them. Some of you, like me, maybe had a poster in your youth group room when you were a kid of some Roman-looking character standing there with all these pieces, and there were verse parameters listed on there, and it pointed, and this is the sword of the Spirit, and all this other stuff. So some of you are probably intimately familiar with this passage. I'm not going to try to explain to you each piece and its function. I do want to say, however, that I, I, I want to clarify what I think is a common misconception in, in Christianity, especially in youth group Christianity, and I don't mean to say that pejoratively, I just mean amongst young people we try to uh, make Scripture more palatable and easy to understand, often at the detriment of the spiritual development of young people. And so what I do want to say is the armor of God is not something that you wake up every day and put on metaphorically. I know that that's the Sunday school version, but I do not believe it's the case. I want to tell you how the armor works and how it is on you right now. But when I stand before a group of people and preach from the Word of God, I have one driving force behind everything that I say, and I want to share it with you now. So if any of you happen to hear me again, or if you've heard me before, you should know this. There's one thing that motivates every time I stand in front of a group of people, believers or unbelievers, and I get to talk about God's Word, and that is make much of Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Show that Jesus is majestic. I want to do, what I want to do for you today is show you how Jesus himself is the key to understanding what the armor of God is 
and how it applies to you as a Christian. Specifically, you as Christians who will one day leave the relative safety of Bible college and enter into the realm of the real world. Those two words are so hard to say next to each other, aren't they? Real world. Will you all be there sometime soon? Some of you came from there and know what I'm talking about already. So the question that we ask ourselves is, how does this armor help me? How does it prepare me for living a life that's worthy of my calling? So for the sake of time, let me talk about my first point, and that is Jesus is the key to understanding the armor of God. Why do I say that Jesus is the key? I have two reasons. If you're a note taker, I see some of you taking notes. First of all, each of the items listed in these 11 verses that are called the armor of God, the whole armor of God, are directly related to Old Testament imagery from the book of Isaiah. They are all directly linked to God's Messiah and his servant who would come in victory and change the world, Jesus. We know him as Jesus. Isaiah 53 talks about this character that we sang about today, this man of sorrows who would be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and his blood will buy us peace. That's Jesus. And we read about him in places like Isaiah 11, 4 and 5, Isaiah 59, verse 17, Isaiah 49, verse 2. All of these passage, passages are different places where these items that are called the armor of God are drawn from. It talks about this servant, and in some cases, this warrior who is wearing these things, and it's what characterizes his life. So the first thing that we need to understand is that the armor we're told to put on is directly linked to God and his Messiah, and it has been provided to his people, us, because of our place in Jesus. This armor is not something that you generate on your own because you read your Bible a lot and find nirvana. You don't create peace in yourself, and then now, now all of a sudden I have the peace part of the armor. I don't do a lot of good, and now all of a sudden I have the righteousness part of armor. Jesus is this armor, and he wore it in his fight against the evil one, in his victory over sin and death, and now because of our position in him, it's ours. This is part of the every blessing in the spiritual realms that we read about back in Ephesians 1. Too many Christians, I'm afraid, view this list as a sort of spiritual checklist that prepares them for warfare. As if you wake up one morning and say, today I would like to evangelize, so I need to make sure I have my belt of truth on and my helmet of salvation, fix that on. I don't even know how one would do that. We teach our kids that. I grew up thinking that. Jesus is key to this armor. For the second reason, why is Jesus the key to understanding this armor? Because you can't get or make or put on this armor by yourself. It refers to this as put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. Now, certainly, it means that the armor is from God, that he's the one that has gifted it to us, but it would be unwise to assume that this simply means that the armor is a gift from God to an individual believer as though it becomes, in some sense, like my own thing that I keep in my closet. 
the allusions to the Isaiah language of the Messiah being clad in this armor is most certainly meant to direct us to the reality that putting on this armor means putting on Jesus himself. It's akin to wearing Christ's righteousness. That's the breastplate of righteousness. It's akin to the gift of salvation. That's the helmet of salvation. What do we call that? Being in Christ. I would argue that this whole armor of God thing finds its uh, explanation in Ephesians 4, verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. That's what we're called to do. And what you need to understand is this aligns with almost every other letter in the New Testament that this is what we're called to do. Be in Christ. Live a life worthy of the calling. Walk in a manner like Paul did. He says, I model myself after Christ. Do like I do. So let me ask a couple questions then about this armor. These obviously lead to the answer that I'm driving at, which is Christ is the key. But if it is true that Jesus Christ dwells in his people by his spirit, and it is true, and if it is true that this warrior Messiah that we serve and love is clad in such armor, and he is, we talked about Isaiah, and if it's true that we as his people have access to him through his blood, then what does that equal? That means that we have the access, the very armor of God, the most powerful defensive and offensive weapons for spiritual warfare, and it's the Lord himself. Isn't that comforting? That should be comforting. I don't have to wake up in the morning and commit to not telling a lie today. They're belt of truth. I don't have to wake up tomorrow morning and check my personal holiness as if somehow overnight I I became a works righteousness person and make sure that my breastplate is tightly secured. I am wearing it now because Jesus' righteousness has been given to me and I don it like a robe and when Christ looks at me, when God looks at me, he sees his son. That's the righteousness that I wear. It is important for us to remember that this passage is not promoting works, righteousness, or readiness. That is, we are not to dig deep and generate some super spiritual armor by really wrestling with our faith today or trying really hard to find peace today or living righteously today so that my breastplate does its job. We are called to rely on the power of the living Christ and His Spirit to strengthen us. Let me show you this by way of comparison. I want to wrap this point up by explaining how it is not your armor, it is Christ. It's not our faith. We read about the, the, the faith bit. It's not our faith. Galatians 2.20 tells us it is the faith of the Son of God that we live by. It is not my righteousness. No one does good. No one seeks after God. It is the righteousness that comes through Christ, according to Romans 3.22. It is not that I have earned peace through any good thing that I have done or step that I have taken. I have not elevated myself to to the place of some level that God found me worthy enough to be called. It is because He brought me peace by His blood, according to Isaiah 53. It is not my salvation that I work for, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and following. Salvation is a gift from God. That helmet, I didn't fashion it. He did, and he gave it to me and to you. 
his children. It is not my understanding of the truth. I almost hesitated to say that. I know Gail's back there. I don't want to get into a conversation about what truth is. It's not my understanding of the truth that is the belt that I wear. Jesus Christ is truth, John 14. He is truth. That's what I'm wearing. I'm wearing Christ's very spirit as he lives in me. So while the theme in this chapel series is spiritual discipline, the armor is not something that you generate or don due to your discipline or works. I will say that there is a discipline of using the armor correctly, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. I don't want to leave that notion out as if all of a sudden I become a Christian and so I just lay down on the ground and wait for Jesus to land on me with his armor. That's not what I'm saying. But this first point is key. I think I want you to understand this before I go on to the next part. Jesus is represented through this imagery here in Ephesians 6, 10 and following. It is by being in Christ that we are able to benefit from this wonderful armor of God that he has given to us as people. So you, everyone sitting here, you have this armor. If you believe in Christ Jesus, you have this armor. It's yours. You're wearing it right now. And Paul's call to put it on, which we're going to talk about in just a second, is a call to spiritual battle, to spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. And this is where the discipline part of wearing the armor of God becomes important. So my second point is more of a question, and I alluded to this at the beginning. What does this mean for me? How does this armor help me, you, as a Bible college student, as a young Christian? Most of you in here are younger than me, so I say that. I don't say that as uh, to be disrespectful to your age. Uh, most of you have been Christians longer than I have. But how do you as a young person in this world watch what just happened a couple days ago? Look at the direction that society is headed. There's spiritual warfare out there. There's division everywhere. How do you then leave a safe haven of a place like Montana Bible College where you are fed and watered and cultivated and cared for and discipled and go out somewhere with this armor fully intact, understanding what the discipline part of using it is and how you are then able to live a life that is worthy of your calling, as Paul commands in chapter 4, verse 1. First, first, having this armor of God, and I want you to think about this in the context of leaving MBC. Having on this armor of God is meant to provide for you confidence. Great confidence. Look at the language he says, be strong in the Lord. That's not weak language. He says, and the strength of his might, well, thank goodness, it's not on me now. It's his might that I'm strong in. He says, stand against the schemes. Wrestle against flesh and blood. Take your stand. Withstand. Stand, therefore, having standed firm. Stood firm, I guess. So he uses this language, this confident language that you are able to do this because you are in Christ and therefore have on his armor. This section, these 11 verses, I'm sure you uh, are aware of this, has much in common with military speeches that a general might offer before going into battle. There's a lot in Greek literature that relates to this sort of language. These hortatory speeches are found 
throughout Greek literature about military engagements. They were designed to rouse troops for impending battle. Paul here is not interested in providing for us a detailed picture of what a Roman soldier's armor is supposed to look like. That's not, what hap- that's not what's happening. Uh, the posters are great, but that's not what Paul's purpose is here. In fact, if we were to look at what an actual Roman soldier would have worn, well, there's a lot of stuff missing in this list right here. So when he says the whole armor of God, we're not meant to think, okay, there's seven things, so seven items, that's what a Roman soldier, that's what I need to have. Well, seven's even the number for perfection. Perfect, this works out really good. It's not a checklist. Paul is not interested in providing a detailed account because it's not the point. Paul is simply using imagery that everyone would understand. Everyone would know what a breastplate is. Everyone would know what a Roman soldier's sword looked like. Everyone would know what their feet were clad with. But more importantly, everyone would know the feeling you get from putting this armor on. The feeling that comes over you when you don this equipment. And what feeling is that? Confidence. Confidence. Putting on this armor gives you a feeling of power. It gives you a feeling of safety. You're protected. This breastplate is meant to protect me. My shield, which is wrapped in leather and soaked in water, is meant to extinguish fiery arrows. This sword is a weapon for offense. It means that I'm prepared. So the imagery is not, think of a Roman soldier. The imagery is feel like a soldier that is clad in armor and ready for battle. Donning the armor is meant to embolden the soldier. It strengthens his, what we call, intestinal fortitude. It serves as the final preparation before battle. Likewise, then, on the opposite end of the spectrum, failing to put this armor would cause even the most battle-hardened soldier to have cause for fear because you would not be protected without it. You have no weapons of power to protect yourself or fight the enemy and you are certainly not prepared for a fierce fight. So we thank God that he has given us this armor to wear in this life that he has called us to, and we're able to live a life that's worthy because we have confidence in the Jesus, the Lord, that we put on as we're in Christ, this new person. Do you remember in Joshua 1, before the Israelites went into the promised land, God told Joshua to be strong and courageous, Have confidence and be firm. Tighten your belt. Hike your pants up. Use whatever language you want. Job is some of the funniest language when he says, stand up like a man. But that's what God tells Joshua. Why? Not because Joshua is a genius. Not because Joshua is the next military great mind. But because God was with him. And because God is with you. Bible tells us that the Lord is near to us and he has given us his armor for confidence. For us as Christians today, this passage serves as a reminder that we do not need to fear because Christ has conquered the world. You're going to face trials in this world. You're going to face difficulties when you leave here. Maybe you're facing them now. But you don't have to fear because Christ has overcome the world. This reminds us that he has defeated the enemy. It reminds us that he has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. 
It reminds us that he has ascended to the Father and is right now reigning victorious from the right hand of the Father while his mighty scepter is extended from Zion, while his church grows, while his kingdom is built. Jesus is the victor, and so we enter into spiritual combat confident because the battle's already won. We have nothing to fear. And this armor, putting this on, being in Christ, being made a new creation, that's meant to embolden you for Christian living. Second, the discipline of the armor of God is the discipline of our active participation with the Spirit in His work. Let me explain quickly. It is true that He has given us His armor, and it's true that we are able to take a stand against the enemy in this life, and it's true that the armor is not a checklist or a physical thing that we put on each day, but there is obviously in this passage strong indications that there are things that we are meant to uh, relate to Christian living. What I mean is, We're told in chapter 4 to live a life that's worthy of your calling, and Paul does not leave us hanging without that information. There is action that you're meant to take here. Now, let me tell you what it is. I know I'm running out of time. For you, the Christian who is going to leave here and go out and participate in spiritual warfare and live out there in the world somewhere, out of this place, what are you to do related to the armor of God that will cause you to live a life worthy of your calling. Let me share a few things. These are based, then, on what the armor of God is. First of all, you're meant to love the truth. Love the truth. I said it a few minutes ago. What is the truth? It's Jesus. Love Jesus. This is a major weapon in your spiritual life. Paul tells his uh, friends, his, the believers in Philippi, to grow and abound in love more and more for our Savior in knowledge as we grow in knowledge of Jesus. Love Him more. Number two, please remember that you cannot work for this. It is not your righteousness that wins the day. Cherish the fact that Jesus gives His righteousness to us. And part of living a life that's worthy of our calling then is pursuing Christ-likeness, is pursuing personal holiness in the way we interact with those three categories, with the church, with the world, and in our homes. Number three, take the gospel of peace to people. Take the gospel of peace to people. We all carry the gospel around in our back pocket like it's some club membership that we have with us if anybody wants to ask us where we're going when we die. And we don't share it with the people that need it the most. Boy, that's, if that's not offensive spiritual warfare, is helping the kingdom grow by winning converts for Christ, by sharing the gospel of peace with them, I don't know what is. Share the gospel with people. Stand strong in the faith of the Son of God, recognizing that it is He who lives through you. We're told to work out our salvation so that we can stand firm in the fact that we are elect, that we have called, so we might not be led astray by false teaching. Love the Word of God. It's called the sword of the Spirit here. Love the Word of God because it is the Word of God and the Spirit that shape you and transform you and teach you and lead you in this Christian life. 
Finally, Paul tells the Ephesians to pray. He says, pray for me and for all the saints. I wish I had more time to deal with this when he says all the saints. That's a, it's a really important part of this puzzle, but he says, remember your partnership in the gospel with your own brothers and sisters here and, and elsewhere. Pray for them. What you are doing when you're praying for other believers is you are not only engaging in spiritual warfare, but you are helping them as they are engaged in spiritual warfare. I hope that as you draw closer to leaving this place, that as Paul says, that your love of God and love for one another would abound more and more. I hope that realizing that this armor is not something that you do, but it's something that Christ has done for you, emboldens you, gives you confidence for faith and for mission. I hope that you grow in your knowledge and love of Jesus and his cross, that you would wear the armor of God correctly, that it would be a daily thing that you understand that you are equipped. He is the victor. We have nothing to fear. Stand firm against the enemy. Paul closes his letter this way, and I'll close this way for us. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Don't you hope that that's true of you, that people can say that about you? Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the peace that he brought us by his very blood on the cross. We thank you for the victory that he secured. We know that we are more than conquerors. We know that the armor that we wear is, is the very spirit of Christ that has been given to us who prepares us for life and ministry and walking in this world. We ask, Lord, that you would, for this group collectively, embolden us with the gospel. Let us sit in awe of what Jesus did for us and share that with people around us. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to fight against the enemy's schemes, to stand firm in the truth, to not be led astray or blown here and there, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us to have confidence, Lord, in who you are, what you have already done, and who we are in Christ. Thank you for not putting it on our shoulders. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves to figure this out, to fight this battle, to walk this life in a manner that's worthy of the calling. None of us are worthy of the calling. None of us can walk in a way that pleases you without your spirit. So thank you, God, for doing the work that you require for us. I ask you would bless the rest of our day uh, as we depart from this place. And I ask in Christ's name, amen.